Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Daigle Bites ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Daigle Bites podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Daigle. I'm a singer that hails from the deep swamps of Louisiana. I ventured my way up to Nashville to take the risk of jumping in on the pipe dream of singing on stages other than the ones I grew up seeing. Along this journey, I wrote a song called You Say, and what came next absolutely changed my life. I found myself in tour buses, singing on stages all over the world, and every single night I would get asked the question, what would Lauren Daigle be doing if she hadn't pursued music? Well, this season of Daigle Bites is answering just that, and I'm bringing you along with me on this adventure. I'm inviting new friends that I've just met and old friends that I've known for a long time to come and explore what it is like to pursue their passions. I know that they've inspired me, and I'm sure that they will probably do the exact same thing for you. So my absolute hope is that as you're sitting and you're listening, you then too can be inspired. You then too can ask the question, what is it that I would love to do with my life? And maybe along the way, you'll find steps to making that happen. So pull up a seat. Join us in the conversation. You have a place here. This is the Dago Bites podcast on Amazon Music. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Dago Bites podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Daigle, and I am so glad to be with you today. The guest on the show today is one of the most inspirational people I have ever met. The reason why is because she took her story, the negative things that occurred in her life, and actually turned them for the good. It is fascinating to me to see her resilience and her delight in not only helping one, but actually helping many, many women around the world. My next guest is the beautiful Becca Stevens. Becca Stevens is someone that should become a household name just for the sheer beauty of her delight in helping so many people around the world. Becca Stevens is a speaker. She's a social entrepreneur. She's an author, a priest, and founder of 10 Justice Initiatives, also the president of Thistle Farms. She's been featured on PBS NewsHour, The Today Show, CNN, ABC World News, named a CNN hero, and White House champion of change. Thistle Farms is an incredible organization here in the Nashville community, but they have also spread their wings all around the world. They offer a two-year residential community for women who have survived trafficking, prostitution, and addiction in a space that allows them to heal and thrive. The reason why we are hosting Becca Stevens on the Dago Bites podcast today is because I always wanted to work with traffic victims. I wanted to figure out how to create these environments. I wanted to get a large plot of land and create small houses for people to come and redefine themselves and relearn who they are. Something I found absolutely fascinating is how Becca started Thistle Farms. She created an environment for women to come and heal. And not only do they find strength and purpose in her community, she allows freedom to these women in a way that I've never seen in any other holistic rehabilitation process. Before we dive in, I want to mention that this episode includes sensitive discussions around sexual assault, minor sexual abuse, and trafficking. 
While this conversation is very insightful and uplifting, we advise you to use discretion as we begin. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I do. This is my friend, Becca Stevens. Becca, I read earlier that your house is a creative household, mm-hmm. that you have kids that are creative, that your husband is creative, that you're a visionary. <laughs> where where are some of the places within your home that you're inspired with Thistle Farms and some of those other places? So, you know, the whole thing I think of when you make a creative home is it's you're not afraid to get messy and you're not yes. afraid to let your kids get messy. That's really, because people are creative. So you know, if you have a box of crayons and paper, you're creative. If you have old bottles that you can turn into candles with, those old crayons you finished with, you just keep going and keep trying to think things through. But yeah, so my oldest son is an artist. He's a singer-songwriter in Nashville, Levi Humman. Our middle son is a oil painter, and wow. he makes the most beautiful oil paintings ever. It's his Caney Humman, if you ever want to go look at it. And our youngest is at SCAD at school, um, the Savannah School College of Art and Design doing graphic Mm -hmm. art. So they're all these beautiful young men who want to express that creativity. Mm -hmm. And I think, I really think it all begins with a place that you're safe enough for people to, that you know people are going to go, that's amazing. Yes. You're so good. Your voice is so beautiful. (laughs) That, That stick figure makes me a heart weep. It's so good. You know, Mm -hmm. and they just- That vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Did you bring them in uh, on the stories of the people that were at Thistle Farms? I've heard one time I was touring with this uh, man named Martin Smith and I asked his wife, I said, how, her name is Anna. I said, Anna, how have you guys done it all this time? They have multiple children, five or six kids and (laughs) they tour- with all of them. And you know, it was so amazing to me because these kids didn't have disdain toward the road life. They were actually super full and alive in that environment, which was beautiful to me. And uh, you know what they said? They said, we didn't separate them from the bad. We kept them involved in the Disney World experiences, you know, when they got to tour and have these premier experiences, but they also took them to the third world countries where children's stomachs were swollen because they had no food. They showed them both ends of the spectrum of life and everything in between. And they said it just taught rich and deep appreciation for life. And I, I'm curious as if your your kids got to experience the birth of Thistle Farms and kind of living the day in and day out. Absolutely. You know, I love that. I love that story. And I love the idea that, you know, our kids are part of the journey, but not just a part of it. They help form it for sure. Mm-hmm. My oldest son, Levi, was about four years old. And we were going to the streets to do some feeding for some of the women I had met. We were just out doing it. And I was pregnant with my second one. And Marcus was on the road at the time. And I was trying to get my oldest in the car. And we happened to be parked in front of the oldest strip club in Nashville, Tennessee, (laughs) called Classic Cat. And as I'm trying to stuff him in the car seat and he's arching his back, like really, it's awful. I couldn't get him in. I realized he's looking up and he said, Mom, why is that lady smiling? And it was the billboard in front of the Classic Cat. And I thought that question about 
you know, just broke my heart for a little boy to ask it because I mm-hmm. thought someday he is not going to ask why we've dressed this lady up in this memory of a cat suit mm-hmm. and bought and sold her a hundred times and asked her to smile. He's think he's going to think that's just part of the landscape of Tennessee or the United mm-hmm. States or whatever. So he really got me going on getting this sanctuary up and running for women so they never have to buy them, sell themselves again. I mean, he was part of my saying, I am going to say this loud and clear. There are no teenage prostitutes. It's all mm-hmm. human trafficking. And I, I mean, when I first was about that, you know, 25, 26 years ago, that's not where people were. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want my son to ever think that that was, you know, that's a clear choice for people because what are the options if that's the choice? Mm-hmm. So he really helped me get started. All my kids have worked at Thistle Farms, volunteered at wow. Thistle Farms. I mean, I just had a big pool party at my house with all the latest graduates, women who have finished their two years here in residency. And um, we had barbecue and swimming, just, you know, how we do. So it's all intertwined family, I love the community that. at Thistle Farms. It's all good. And my kids have been probably in I don't know, maybe eight or nine countries with us as we've started new groups working with women survivors. Where I mean, I don't know, maybe more than that. I don't know, a lot over the years. that They were raised going overseas with us. And, and the great thing is when you go overseas, your kids learn there are some times where you're with folks and the kids' stomachs are sticking out and there is really amazingly humbling poverty. But you also see amazing things. Mm-hmm. And beautiful things that you would never see anywhere else. And you see yes. really great workers in the field out there doing awesome things. And you learn respect and dignity for all people when you head out over wherever, the Gulf, the, the ocean, wherever you're headed. It's amazing to see how in places of such poverty, there is such kindness. I feel like acts of kindness are everywhere because— so much of the community relies on each other. While we were in Costa Rica, our car couldn't fit through this valley. And we went during the rainy season, so everything was flooded, right? Mm. And this man was coming from the opposite direction on his motorbike, crossed the waters, drove along, realized that we were just assessing the water, turned around, came all the way back, not only did he come back, but he got off his bike and he walked into the body of water just to show us how deep it was, covered himself in water just to show, and then he directed us as to how to route through it. And I thought to myself, wow, the fact that time didn't eliminate his ability to be kind, the pressure of getting somewhere didn't remove his ability to be present and see someone in need, those kind of acts of kindness and acts of service are just so beautiful to me and so astounding. And what is one of the greatest expressions of love you've ever experienced? Where was the greatest form of love shown to you? Mm, I mean, it depends on what day you ask me, probably. Celebrating 33 years of marriage to my husband. I got married at 24. Wow. 24. And I think my husband is that amazing, consistent, loving 
person that has been in my life. You know, he's won Grammys writing songs on love. That feels nice to know that somebody's writing about it and they actually show it in well, a you, pure way. Do you too. know the song, Bless the Broken Road, God Bless the Broken Road? Oh, yeah. So Marcus, mm-hmm. my husband, wrote that when we were, wow. I mean, probably been married about four or five years. And he wrote a song called Only Love that was a number one hit for Winona back when we first got wow. together. And he wrote a song. Cowboy, take me away for the chicks about love. Like he wrote love songs. I mean, he was about that, but he lived it in our personal life too. And that's been awesome. I feel like that can be rare too. You know, (laughs) it's funny. Artists can sometimes escape to the pen and page and they, they can become someone pen to paper, but in their actual day-to-day reality, it's a bit different. So to hear that he has the gift of both what he puts on paper and who he is behind the scenes is an equivalent expression. That's amazing. It's like he has reminded me that it's about discipline, this Mm -hmm. idea of love and inspiration. Like you don't always have to be inspired. You just have to do the work and trust that inspiration will come. Yes. Especially in love. Well, one of the things I was most compelled by, and I think this is probably a little bit off topic, but... Uh, I read in one of the notes where you had talked about your father passing away and you experienced sexual abuse in the church. And I've heard this said so many times about how people um, were abused sexually and they lost trust in church. They lost trust in God. They lost trust in faith. They completely removed themselves because of the pain um, and having trust be broken at such a deep level. Um, and later on, I was reading in your bio where you became a priest and it's pretty fascinating to me, this bridge here, how did you overcome distrust in the church? Have you overcome distrust in the church? And what are some of the obstacles that you had to navigate as you walked out that process? You know, I just want to say that no question is too far off in the weeds for me. I mean, that's how I've made my whole journey is just staying in the weeds and figuring out how to make relationships. Mm -hmm. And I will say that the reason it was was all connected is my dad was an Episcopal priest. So he came to Tennessee from Connecticut because he was a priest. So he was killed because he was starting that mission church in Nashville, Tennessee. So my mom was 35 years old with five kids. And so it was the guy who took over for my father in that church that began sexually abusing me. Mm. And my memory is it went on for close to three years. I mean, my first memories are around six years old. My last memories are right before my ninth birthday. But what I keep thinking is that I have an amazing mom. I mean, even though we were poor, she had five kids, she was working daycare, She was an amazing person. And a lot of times, if you can have one of those amazing people in your life, you know, the the traumas that you go through don't have the same impact if you have no safety net at all. The second thing is that for whatever reason, the biggest gift in my life is I never confused it with God. I never, like God has never been my issue. (laughs) I have a lot, a lot of issues from it. I have authority issues. I have abandonment issues. I have all that kind of stuff. But I always, in the deepest part of my being, like I knew the sky was blue. I knew that God was love. Yeah. Wow. I love the simplicity of that. I feel like every person listening that has 
experienced any sort of abuse or any sort of trauma within the church can learn from that simple, the sky is blue and God is love. It's just that simple. Um, some people have left the church because of the pain that they've experienced in the church. And I always say, God, show me people that can help navigate these waters because they're waters that are a little bit foreign to me. And I, I want to learn as much as I possibly can. And you you seem like you've brought something beautiful from what could have been a chaotic storm. And it was a chaotic storm. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. There was some chaos in yeah. that storm. But the good thing is that to me, it's like for people who have experienced that, create the church that you want to have. You know, if you want the church, yeah. if you want the church to be a welcoming place, be welcoming. You know, if you yeah. want it to be a safe place, be safe. And that's, I mean, the church isn't something outside of us. It's a body of people. And so mm-hmm. I think I was always interested in creating a community that was welcoming, that was safe, that was about just being as radical as we could about the deepest parts of love. And that meant that love had to outweigh dogma. Love had mm-hmm. to be more important than liturgy or, yeah, you know, whatever those things are that divide congregations. It's like, we're just going to be rooted in this and everything we do is going to be about trying to help heal our larger communities and do this work outside these walls. So that's what, you know, I've been associated with a tiny little chapel that's helped start tons of organizations, including that's where I started Thistle Farms from. I read where you always talk about the practicality of love, how love needs to be practical, how we need to meet people with with precise intention. And I think that is so beautiful. What what are one of the stories where you've seen your practicality impact someone? Like that you went home, you put your head on the pillow and you said, I know that I know that I know if it was for that one person, this is why I did this. Mm. In my mind, the way I imagine it is almost like a quilt and there's squares all over it. And it's this, it's, it's as beautiful as the coat of many colors. You know, I've learned so much and and believe in the dignity of this work so much that it's not just the amazing success stories, which we have. We have so much success in so many women. I mean, we have more than 500 beds, almost 600 beds now around the country, long-term free beds for women survivors. You know, 30 global partners doing awesome work. Hundreds of women who have graduated the program, but When I first started out, there was a woman named Peggy Sue. And Peggy Sue never really made it off the streets. When I met her, she was in police custody at um, a state hospital Mm. with a feeding tube and with shackled. So she was shackled with a feeding tube. She was a Baptist girl who was Mm -hmm. beaten and raped early on, went to the streets. But she knew Scripture, and she wanted to talk about Scripture. And we did. We sat by her bed for a few days and talked and prayed, and she just wanted to, you know, be out of pain. She died in a few days, and, you know, the state had claimed her ashes. There was no one to even claim her body. And it felt very overwhelming to me, new in this work, like, you know, wasn't there anything anybody could have done, you know? And is it a whole thing of if you're raped young and you're poor and it's a racist society— that this is what happens to you. 
and you know, you're just in a cardboard box with nobody that even claims it. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of funerals in my life. I can't ever remember being more nervous to do a funeral thinking, you know, what's the point of all this? And this is too, people are right. This is too overwhelming, you know, the issues, all of it. And there was four or five of us gathered together um, to say some prayers and hold a little service with with her ashes. And I started off and I just said, the Lord be with you. And then no one could speak. And I felt myself just in this flood of tears. I was just, you couldn't cut through it. It was so thick. The spirit, I can't even explain it. I haven't ever felt it since then. It was so thick. It was almost like you felt like you were in heaven. And I was like, if the worst the world has to offer landed on her little 85-pound frame, and this is the welcome home, better than whatever, chariots, whatever is happening, the wheel and the wheel in the mm-hmm. sky. It's like I would work my whole life to have this feeling and to know that love is more powerful and gets the last word. Like we don't even have to say anything. Love is filling this space. God's presence is so here. And it wasn't just me. I mean, there was, again, the whole group of us not planned it at all. You know, no flowers, no music, but just this, oh, I mean, just as powerful a presence as I think people felt, you know, on the stormy seas when they calmed. That just stopped me in my tracks. Like those are the, those deep breath stories. My, I've had an experience like that once, one time, where I felt like I could literally reach out and hold the hand of an angel. Like I couldn't decipher between what was heaven and what was earth because the two, those two realities became so synonymous. And it was, at the, it was when my grandfather had passed. And I mean, the, I just have no words for the way that felt. But it made me think, you know what? I can find a million reasons why God isn't true. I can find a million reasons why He isn't real. I can find any philosophy book and it'll tell me all the right reasons why He's not real. But the one thing I can never for the rest of my life deny is that experience. Regardless of where life takes me, regardless of the routes that Uh, regardless of the places that would try to convince me otherwise, that experience is bar, bar none. And I love that the world would see Peggy Sue as someone that would either be unfit or unqualified for that type of service, for those welcoming arms to be that strong around her. But that is the beauty of God is that He doesn't see us as the world sees us. And I think He has shown that so beautifully through the work that you've done. I, you know, I have family that have dealt, they've dealt with addiction and prostitution for drugs and things like that my whole life. I saw where you have a program that works alongside people in prison. I want to talk to you about that. That's amazing. And I also saw where your homes don't have live-in staff. And I, when I read that, my jaw hit the floor. I was like, this, she gets it. Because I, I feel like there's an element where responsibility 
If responsibility isn't incurred in the process of restoration, then this I've watched this happen with my family members. The second they get back out on the streets, it just unravels, you know? So tell me a little bit about those two decisions. Why did you choose to work with the prison system? And also, why did you choose to not have people living in the house with with those seeking to rehabilitate? That's amazing. I just want to say, I'm, when you were talking about your grandfather, and then I'm going to answer all your questions about prison oh, in great. the house. But just really quick about your grandpa, is that I do think it's when that veil is so thin between life and death that we are the most open to it. And it's not a coincidence mm. that we can feel God's loving presence and arms at those moments and that you and I would both have that amazing touchstone that'll carry us through so much at times when we think that we were pretty broken. And that is, you know, isn't that the whole message is that, you know, it's not in our strength, it's in our weakness. It's it's in mm-hmm. our brokenness that we find this miracle of compassion. It's in our weakness that we find this amazing courage. And, you know, and I think also in in those moments when we can find gratitude, we have gotten as close to faith as we can get. If I can just say thank you. So I love, mm-hmm. love your grandpa for being that person for you in your <laughs> life. Now, as far as prison goes, you know, I mean, I tell every seminarian I ever meet who's studying for ministry, you know, if you're having trouble write a, writing a sermon, go to prison, don't go to the library. It's like you said, you know what? All the books are going to tell you a lot of stuff, but if you want to feel the presence of God, go to prison. You know, I never, Mm -hmm. ever believe people when they're like, well, you know, I'm just bringing the Lord in prison. It's like, guess where God is? Guess where Jesus (laughs) is sitting right there? That is where you find this love, this passion. People always ask me, where's where's your favorite place you've ever sang? I'm like, oh, I know exactly where. Statesville. Statesville and Angola. It's life-changing. Yes. Keep going. Sorry, I couldn't. No, you off. and I've done a prison tour before to talk to women mm-hmm. and to bring musicians with me. You'll have to go on the next one. Yes. Yes. We go, we go up to I Eastern Kentucky. To. We go anywhere. We'll go everywhere. Anywho, um, so because I have that background with the abuse by an authority, I get what a trigger, and I hate the word trigger. I would like to use mm-hmm. the word uncovering. Uncovering authority is like it sparks something and you have to either run or manipulate or cry or hate. You know, if authority worked, prisons would be an amazing success. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in prison, there's no such thing as post traumatic stress disorder. It's just stress disorder. Yeah. <laughs> there's no post. Yep. The people I was meeting and how I would want to live if I was coming right off the streets or out of prison was. I'd want it to be free because people always tell you, you know, you got to pay for things to understand the value. And it's like, no, you don't. Yeah. In my life growing up poor with my mom, the things that were free were the most valuable. So make the whole thing free. Just make it a gift. Just give it in gratitude for the mercy you've known and let it go. Don't let it be about money anymore. Second thing was two years because people, you know, I don't like shelters. I don't like Halfway houses. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, those work for some people, but if you have a ton of trauma and addiction stuff, no. You know, if you're asking somebody to go in a halfway house for six months and pay $125, you're asking them to go hustle. That's what you're asking yeah. them to go do. And then the whole thing about two years free, but no authority to me was like, if it's a gift, it means you get to choose how you want to use it. 
I can't like stand over and you go, are you going to wear it? Are you going to wear it? Like I gave you the dress mm-hmm. and I'm like, now are you going to wear it? And you're just going, like, I hate the dress. Now you've put so much pressure on me. Yes. So my thought was, here's your home. Let it, let me know what you need. And so you wow. don't, so you don't hate it. Mm-hmm. It inspires you to thrive. You want to make the next best decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've watched that with family where, you know, I've seen them go to prison and in prison, they do some sort of recovery, rehabilitation, but it's a forced thing through the the state. And then they leave that environment. And, you know, I had a cousin who said, I, I want to continue on that path. So she went into a halfway house with surveillance. There were people living in home with her and it just didn't fare out. And she, you know, she went back to the streets and started doing it all over again. And you know, your heart grieves and you say, okay, where is a better system? Like, I am searching. Where is the better system? You need to get her in touch with us. Is she still on the streets? Oh, yeah, yeah. She can call us. She and her mom. She can call us. I'm serious. I'll do it. We have an amazing referral program. If she's looking for something different or when she's ready, we can— I mean, there's places in Louisiana, in New Orleans, that are sister programs, Eden House— yeah. There's some amazing things, and I mean that's what we do. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll tell her because I've been trying to find something that's different. You mm-hmm. know, something that that's for everybody listening in too. If you are someone who's dealing with addiction, dealing with prostitution, check out Thistle Farms because they're open arms. I've I've seen it in all of the literature that I've read about this of farms, I'm just, I'm amazed. And I know time is running short, so I'm gonna ask one last question. For somebody who is listening on the other side and they say, I have that same passion. I wanna do something that not only advances the kingdom of God, but helps love practically right now, here and now. Whether it's a nonprofit organization that they wanna start or whether it's just going out and feeding their neighbor, whatever that looks like. Where was day one for you? What did day one, whether it was the inception of the idea, whether it was the first day that you got some legs to the dream, where was day one for you? And where could be a day one for someone else? Day one for me was for sure, when I actually did it, was the day my son saw the lady and said, why is that lady smiling? That was definitely the turning point for me from a bunch of ideas and trying to be kind of all over the board. But I really have written, I've just written a whole book on this for people called Practically Divine. I mean, it's like, what did you do during COVID? I wrote this book about that, about taking the first small steps wherever you are right now, the very, very first small steps with great intention. That's what you have to do is the very next small thing. And do it with the intention that, you know, you want it to be healing. You want it to be loving. I mean, if I ever thought I'm going to start an organization, you know, that is going to take me 25 years and and require millions of dollars a year, making sure there's a staff of 100 people, blah, blah, I never would have gotten out of bed. Mm-hmm. If you think like you're going to open a house for five women, that's not going to help change the world. But it does. Small things with great intention do. And it's like, it's crazier to think if you never take that first small step that anything will change. Yeah. We get to live into our ideals. We get to practice justice in our lives. It doesn't have to be a sideline. It's like, do something small. 
What soap are you using? How are you spending your money? What are you putting on your body? What coffee are you drinking? Who are you hanging out with? How are you spending your time? Where do you volunteer? How do you worship with people? Those are things that add up to a big life. I love that. Becca, what? thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to meet you in person and wrap my arms around you. I'm ready. I feel like we're kindred spirits. <laughs> well, I was thinking about that. I was looking at you on, on all your beautiful platforms, and I was like, she could be my daughter. Like really just with your like bracelets that. or with your whatever, I was like, she could totally be my daughter. So I yes. can't wait to meet you. And I love everything you're about and all your singing and all your work. It is beautiful. And thank you for dedicating your time to this. I really appreciate it. All right, Becca, if people are trying to look up Thistle Farms, where would they find you? They can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just Thistle Farms. You can find me, Becca Stevens. I, I mean, I look at my DMs all the time, but also just on the website, just thistlefarms.org. Well, thank you. One day we'll come we'll come sing to the ladies. If they'd like that, sure. whatever, whatever helps you. Absolutely. Whatever keeps the ball rolling. We're all about it. Come on. Thank you. Daigle Bites is an Amazon Music podcast hosted by me, Lauren Daigle, and produced by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. Hey, I'm Lauren Daigle. For more interviews and thought-provoking conversations and to listen to every episode, follow us here exclusively on Amazon Music. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Daigle Bites ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But... This story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder... Had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.